as we get ready to hear God's word, a particular word today, um, it's good for us to be reminded with the words of the Apostles' Creed of the summary of the whole story of Scripture. Let's say together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You can have a seat. So I stand before you as a person who my whole life has not really liked to apologize, um, prefers being right about most things, and kind of is slow to present myself as being wrong or not knowing what I'm doing. And at the same time, I totally recognize I need forgiveness for being that kind of person among the many things I need forgiveness for. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. On the one hand, Jesus' forgiveness for me offers a huge doorway of radical hospitality into the presence of God. And on the far side, because Jesus forgives me, it makes possible over time my long journey to become more and more like him and more and more the man that he has created me to be with time and grace and forgiveness to grow into that high and holy target of radical obedience. As far as I can tell, there are two pathways or trajectories for a human life to go. Because of our own errors, because of the trouble of the world, either you can grow resentful and full of regret over all of the harm and collateral damage in this world and it can accumulate over time, it's a bad way. Or you can experience and receive and offer and practice forgiveness, which over time will be a pathway that lets you become, even in old age, a person who is freer and lighter and more gracious. And God holds this the way of foolishness and the way of wisdom out in front of all of us. And Jesus humbly invites us to be the kind of person who embraces forgiveness, the pathway of forgiveness. This is no easy thing. Um, great saints have wrestled mightily between these pathways of regret and resentment and forgiveness. The Apostle Paul himself in the book of Romans uh, writes about his own internal struggle. Check out these words from Romans chapter 7 and the beginning of Romans chapter 8 and see if you don't feel in this incredible saint of the church the struggle 
So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, Paul says, evil is right there with me. Have you ever had that feeling? For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, in his word, in his ways, but I see another law, another principle at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work in me. What a wretched person I am who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death, not only mortal death, not only being buried, but like the death that comes from sinful behavior and all the regrettable things that we do. Have you ever said a line like that? What a wretched person that I am. Who will rescue me from me? Like, God, have you noticed the kind of like patterns that go through my mind? Have you noticed the kind of things I say that I keep saying? Have you noticed what a wretched person that I am? That's about as honest as a saint can be right there. But then Paul turns this corner. But thanks be to God. This is the way of forgiveness. Who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law. But in my sinful nature, in the still broken being that I run around in, a slave to the law of sin still. But therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Could there be more beautiful, poetic, powerful words about this push and pull, spiritually speaking, that every follower of Jesus experiences? At one point, Paul says, the good that I want to do, I cannot do. And the crud, the the very bad things that I don't want to do, I find myself doing those things. Anybody ever had that experience? This internal warfare, wanting to do what's right, wanting to go toward goodness, and then the law of human nature, the law of a broken world, kind of polluting even the best of things. This is why all of us, every single one, needs to be forgiven. Both for what we do and say, and for the brokenness that we carry around, and on this side of the grave are never going to totally shake. I am the kind of guy who needs to be forgiven. Like, routinely by my wife and family, by God, by you all. Are you the kind of person who needs to be forgiven? Are you the kind of person who recognizes that you need to be forgiven? On a weekly basis? Daily basis? Hourly basis? If we're going to be honest, it's a moment-by-moment -moment basis. Um, so my wife Sarah reads a lot of books. Uh, recently she was reading um, the latest in a series called The Number One's Lady Detective Agency. Books. They're set uh, in a detective agency in the country of Botswana near South Africa. 
I bring this up because the characters in this book are really winning. Lovely ladies, well-intentioned, generous. And in this newest book, here's a chapter that happens. There's a woman named Grace, wonderfully named, and her coworker Precious, and they're driving in a car to see a friend of theirs who runs um, an orphanage named Ma Potokwane. So Grace and Precious are in the car, and they have this beautiful thought. We should buy lunch for Ma Potokwane. She's always taking care of kids, feeding kids, doing everything for kids. So they stop at a restaurant on the way to the orphanage and uh, buy the Botswanan equivalent of like a burger and fries, like a steak pie and fries. Sound like wonderful Christian women at this point, right? Yes? So as they're traveling to the orphanage, they have a little farther to drive, and one of them says, like, those French fries are so hot, and they smell so good. Maybe we should just stop and eat one. So they do. And then one thing leads to another, and they eat all of the fries. And they're like, we just won't tell our friend that we bought fries. Then as they drive a little further, they realize, like, what good is a steak pie without fries? So they eat the steak pie. And they're like, well, we didn't promise her that we were going to bring her lunch. So, like, no harm, no foul, right? So they arrive at the orphanage. They have a lovely time together. And then Ma Potokwane, who's always taking care of the orphans, says to them, it really is lunchtime, and we've made a delicious, huge lunch for you. So they start pushing course after course in front of these lovely Christian women who have just downed a giant meal of steak pie and french fries. And after trying to eat this huge provided lunch with the orphan kids, they finally break down and confess. We can't eat anymore because we bought you lunch, but we ate it all ourselves. Like, being sinners doesn't mean we're doing the worst possible thing all the time. You know, we have this phrase in theology, total depravity. It doesn't mean that we're all doing the most maximum evil all the time. But it means that even our best deeds have something a little off about them. That we cannot shake the pollution, the corruption of our sinful nature. I love that story because it's such an incredible, like, been there. Even our best intentions, we can turn toward ourselves. So a church, a church that professes to believe in this book, a church that says we believe in the forgiveness of sins, why do we say this? Because we are the society of imperfect people who need forgiveness. Not so that we can like look down our noses at the rest of the world, or our friends or neighbors who are not here on Sunday morning, of course they need forgiveness too. But when we say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, the first person to come to mind should be yourself. Both as a target for Jesus' forgiveness and a person who needs to practice forgiveness toward others. You know who really knows about being forgiven and doing forgiveness? People who have been to prison. Um, one of our retired pastors, Burt DeYoung, and his wife Celia and some other friends from Elmhurst CRC 
were just at Angola State Penitentiary in Louisiana and at Parchman Prison, which is in the state of Mississippi. And one of the amazing things that has happened in the Louisiana penal system through the decades is that some of the longtime prisoners and inmates who had life sentences from being convicted oftentimes as juveniles after serving for decades and decades have had their uh, sentences commuted and been released. Several of the men who used to be serving life sentences in Angola are now serving as pastors and chaplains in the outside world, and some of them serve in Parchman Prison in Mississippi. Now, can, imagine, can you imagine that if you spent 30 years in prison, that you would want to go back to prison for your day job? But that's what some of these gentlemen, because they are called by God, uh, are doing. We're going to see a short minute and a half video from an inmate pastor named Ron Olivier. And please listen to him. Uh, you're going to hear a very official sounding voice from the state of Mississippi. And then you're going to hear directly from Ron. This is a man who knows more than us about forgiveness. 30 years ago, Ron Olivier killed a young man, shot him in an argument. He was incarcerated at America's largest prison, Louisiana's Angola prison, where he relived that split second it takes to murder someone every second of every day of his life. In his introspective journey, he learned a key life-changing lesson. He mustered the courage and asked the mother of his victim to forgive him. It was like handcuffs and shackles came off of me. You know, it, it didn't really matter what happened in court after that because that was, that was always my... My, my priority there, um, that was first on my list, that if I can ever tell this, ask this lady to forgive me, that was more important than me going home. Ron now teaches that forgiveness is the ultimate freedom. It's very liberating. It's nothing like being forgiven for something that you know you, you've done, but in order for that to happen, you have to own what you have done. And, and that's, that's a hard transition when... Um, Somebody's been taught in the street that you never own that. You never say you've done anything, and even if you did do it. And so, and, and so, so I, I pray that my testimony helps liberate people here. Does he look and sound like a free person to you? He does to me. How is that possible that after three decades of being sentenced to prison, that you come out the other side talking about forgiveness? Did you hear what he did? Did you catch it? That God put on his heart to ask for forgiveness from the family of the person that he had killed. And he did that. And he recognized that on the street, like nobody does that. I would say often in the church, hardly anybody does that. Like we are so busy presenting ourselves as knowing what we're doing, being confident of the right way, 
that even when we're wrong, we're slow to apologize and ask for forgiveness. There is nothing, even the murder of another human being, that is beyond the blood of Jesus to cover up and forgive. But when we act like we don't need to be forgiven, when we cut ourselves off from telling the truth and saying what's what, we close the door, we put up a dam so that the blood of Jesus can't quite get to us. So how do we keep that open? Um, one thing I've noticed in my life is that there are different ways to measure right and wrong. Okay? And the way that I am commending to you this morning is found in this book. Like God says, oh, that might be a problem. God says lots of things about what is true, what is false, the wise way, the foolish way. Oh, you're so kind. Thanks, Jonathan. But our American way does not exactly overlap with the biblical way. Have you noticed this? That some things that are totally okay as an American, like I would say are off target or even biblically immoral. Um, in the world, our country measures in miles, in feet, in yards and in inches, in ounces. Have you ever traveled to another country because nobody else in the world does this? Right? There's this beautiful system called the metric system with meters and liters, and you know, there's a hundred centimeters in a meter, and how many meters are there in a kilometer? Wow, a thousand, they're all nice round numbers, and you take a liter of water, and how much does it weigh? A kilogram? Like everything is beautifully organized, and it makes no sense to us as Americans, right? Like, there's different ways to measure the same thing. And so it is with right and wrong. There's what we do in the cultures of the world, and there's what God says in this book. Let me give you just a few tiny examples, like, God invites us in this book to observe a Sabbath day, to worship, rest, and play. Like, it is a moral thing to do that. In fact, to ignore God and never worship him is immoral. If you never go to church as an American, does anybody care? Of course not. You're not violating any American standard. How about generosity? Americans are the most generous people in the world. No doubt. But the biblical principle is that we actually give away the first 10% of what God gives us, this principle called a tithe. Like, if you tell an average American that you are doing that because you love God and you're honoring him with the possessions, that God, people will look at you like you're crazy. Truly, that you're crazy, even though Americans are so generous, because we have a different standard of morality that comes out of this book. Christians are called to even love their enemies. Really troubling words from Jesus. 
Like, what if our political parties practiced love of the enemy? Could you imagine, uh, whatever, Donald Trump being like, I, I forgive Joe Biden. You know, we're going to, or can you imagine Joe Biden being like, let's all forgive Donald Trump, shall we? Like, that's not how American morality works, right? It's not how American politics works. But for Christians, we do not have the option of hating. Even the folks we have the most violent, appropriate disagreements with. Like, we have a different standard of living. And it's a bigger difference than meters to yards or ounces to liters. So when I say we need forgiveness, we need forgiveness because of the really high and holy calling that this book puts out. Like, we need to be forgiven according to not meeting the standards of God's word. During the Civil War, somebody asked President Abraham Lincoln if he believed that Almighty God was on the side of the North. Here's what Abraham Lincoln said. It is not my concern whether God is on our side, said Lincoln. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. Do you catch that profound truth? How often we in the church or in politics, if we try to stake out a claim even related to the Bible to get the Bible to be on our side, rather than trying to be on the side of the God who was so kind that he moved heaven and earth to be with us in Jesus and spoke to us in this book. Okay, here's where it's going to get really, really tough for a minute. So what does God's book say about the part of being embodied that is our human sexuality? Notice not, not what does America say, what does this book say? That is a really significant and important question for us. The denomination of which our little church is a part is having a really serious conversation about exactly this. The conversation when it's best is about this. Not what does America say, but what does this book say, what does God's revelation say about being an embodied, and if you're post-puberty, a uh, human being who's been entrusted to steward their sexual energy. So of the Ten Commandments, right, uh, the Seventh Commandment says very clearly, succinctly, don't commit adultery. Is that just about people who are married to each other? So if you're like an 18-year-old kid, you're going to be like, sweet, I can't break that commandment. I'm not even married. Um, in fact, through the whole scriptures, through Jesus' teaching, it becomes alarmingly clear that like, it doesn't matter if you're single or married, young or old, straight or gay. Like We all have the inclination in our broken human nature to break that commandment. In the Reformed Church, breaking the seventh commandment, we call that with a 
usually a very small direct word, unchastity. That's what it means to break the seventh commandment. As part of our denominational conversation, uh, this summer our synod adopted a short paragraph that tries to make very clear uh, what breaks the seventh commandment. Like what doesn't meet the standard of this word. I recognize, and I'm about to read this paragraph, you know, so often the church has the reputation of just saying like, don't do it. Like sexual behavior is bad. Just like keep a lid on it. We have the reputation for having a very negative posture toward human sexuality. I would like to frame it in a different way and say, like, no, the original goodness of God making you who you are and giving you sexual energy is a good thing. But of all the energies that there are in the world, this is a part of our nature that is perhaps most quickly one that can be mismanaged and go astray. So with that in mind, um, here is a very short sentence that the synod of our denomination um, Past, I would say for the benefit, there's going to be some really hard words in here. Unchastity, in the Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 108, we read from the Catechism a little earlier, encompasses these behaviors. Adultery, premarital sex, extramarital sex, sexual violence, both within and outside of covenantal marriage. Polyamory, Pornography, consumption of, manufacture of, and homosexual sex, all of which violate the seventh commandment. Our denomination makes very clear that the inclination toward or orientation toward any of these things is not inherently sinful. It is part of the brokenness of this world for sure, but it is the practice or behavior that fails to meet the standard of this book. Here's my assumption standing in front of you today. That pretty much all of us, not pretty much all of us, all of us have experienced disordered longings, desires, behaviors according to the biblical standard that I just read. We are not a society in the church of perfect people. We are the society of sinners needing a savior. We are troublemakers who need a holy target. In the American measure of things, our mindset works this way. Here's what I feel or long for in my mind, in my body, in my spirit. Again, I'm speaking just as an American here. And if this is what I want or desire, this is the way I was made. Therefore, I need to pursue it in order to be fully alive and happy. Have you gotten that message? As an American, that is our message. The Christian measure goes like this. All of us experience brokenness in our heart of hearts. And because of nothing that we did wrong as a baby or in utero, are born into the world with collateral damage from this broken, sinful world. It's in our minds, it's in our hearts, 
It's in our desires and longings. And the Christian statement is this, rather than just leaning into everything that we're inclined toward, if God's word says that our longings and desires are off, we are morally responsible to lean in the direction of God's word rather than what comes naturally. This is super difficult, right? I'm recognizing this is radically countercultural. So what are you saying, Pastor Greg? Are some people more broken? They're just objects of the sin of the world because they're inclined toward addictive pornography or they really would like to be in a same-sex relationship. I'm saying all of us are in the same boat. No matter what you have going on, no matter how the brokenness of the world is reflected in your life, I look at you eye to eye, brother to sister, brother to brother, on the ground beneath the cross of Jesus, recognizing we all need Jesus. I have traits in my life, I'm not going to get too personal here, that clearly illustrate the brokenness of the world. In my family, going back generations, there is a propensity toward dark and depressive thinking, alcoholism, and self-harm to the point of suicide. And that is part of my DNA. Sometimes I feel it more strongly than others. With my siblings, we are prone toward overconfidence as a family unit and self-aggrandizement. Those are really great characteristics, right? Should I lean into that? I mean, I get to talk in front of hundreds of people on a weekly basis. It's, an, it's amazing. Right? Should I lean into that, or is it my calling as a follower of Jesus to actually slowly crucify that part of myself so that I can serve as a pastor, with Lord willing, a humble and self-giving spirit? It's the latter. I mean, in my own physical flesh, uh, I have a preponderance of freckles and moles had a few of them removed that, like, were dangerous when I was a kid. You know, so, like, all of us in our biology, in our heads, in our minds, in our skin, like, we are manifestations of the brokenness of the world. And by and large, if you are a Christian person, we need to seek the Holy Spirit when to understand, I was born this way, and, and this is part of God's good creation and need to lean into it, or I was born this way, but this inclination does not bring me in the direction of the measure of this book, so I need to die to myself. Have you ever prayed to the Holy Spirit for help discerning which of those two massive different pathways that God is leading you down? When it comes to your romantic life, young people, your sexuality, like this should be a frequent area of prayer. Holy Spirit, guide me. Jesus himself was occasionally questioned and faced uh, testing in exactly this area. Um, one time, uh, 
the issue of broken relationships and divorce was brought in front of him. And here's what Jesus, the son of God, wisely and perfectly said. Haven't you all read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning, the creator, quote, made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one else dare to separate. When confronted with the trouble of the world, part of the collateral damage of sin, what did Jesus do? He went back to the beginning, the way God created and intended things to be. When we face the collateral damage of sin within ourselves, we are wise when we follow Jesus' example to go back to the way things were designed and created to be and ask ourselves, how might God help me to lean into that rather than to lean into whatever my particular brokenness is? That is not an American thing to do. That is a Jesus-loving Christian thing to do. There is a huge difference between American morality and the Bible's morality, a huge difference between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So what's a person to do? Um, I read this paragraph uh, from our synod pertaining sexual morality and immorality in particular. Um, I'm going to tell you a few quick stories about some noble men in this case um, who I think are following Jesus' wise direction and trying to lean into the original goodness of creation and God's fingerprints on their life. Um, back in June, I sat for an entire week of meetings next to a guy. I'm going to call him Dan. His name's not Dan. He lives in Canada. Um, like me, he is a pastor of a Christian Reformed church. Um, unlike me, he is a single guy and is attracted to men, okay? He is a pastor in our denomination, and because he is trying to embrace uh, both who he is and what he believes to be the Bible's standard of morality, he believes he's called to be a single person and to channel his sexual energy into generosity to the congregation that he serves and to creativity because he's a writer and a poet. As I sat next to him for an entire week, because we're having a conversation, like a business meeting almost, about human sexuality, there were a few times where I would say more conservative or hardcore biblical people, like expressed their opinion of biblical morality so harshly as to imply that if you were a young person or young adult who was same-sex attracted, that you were particularly worthy of God's judgment. I'm sitting next to this guy and literally saw him weep because of what I would call inaccurate and a misinterpretation of the Bible. Do you hear me on this? Like, this is a guy who is celibate and single, trying his best to follow Jesus. 
On the other hand, there were times where well-intentioned Christians were trying to take what I think is the Bible standard of morality on human sexuality and move it into the background and basically said to him, Dan, you're wasting your life as a single person. Like, why are you trying to be celibate? Like, just find a good man, get together, leave your church, find another denomination or something. This also made him weep as I'm sitting next to him. It's an effect that some people are telling him, like, you're stupid, Dan, for living your life the way you're living it. I admire this brother because he is walking a road that is harder than the road I'm walking where he's called to be a pastor and be single and be celibate because he believes that's what this book is asking of him in particular with the brokenness that he experiences. I have another friend. I'm going to call him Peter. His name's not Peter. He is from Texas. I see him four times a year. Uh, he is not a pastor. Peter is a musician, and he recognized as a teenager um, that he was more interested romantically in boys than girls. Never dated a guy. Um, he, he loves the Bible and believes that to follow his natural inclinations in this broken world uh, would be off target. Um, in college, he tried dating girls a couple times, didn't go well, wasn't super interested, felt like he was lying, being disingenuous. After he graduated college, um, he tried one more time, asked this girl out, they went, they went out a couple times, and he found uh, a really amazing camaraderie and chemistry with her. On their third date, he said basically the same to her. He said this to her. Um, I am more attracted to men than women. I really like you. I love the Bible. I think I need to live my life as a married person. I feel the tug in my heart, which I think is from God, and I've confirmed this through prayer, that I'm supposed to have and raise children. And if this means we never go out again, like, that's okay. But I'd be interested in going out with you more, he told this young lady. I mean, kind of like put all his cards on the table. And she respected that and did not run away. Okay, this is now 22 years ago. And they have three daughters. He's still attracted to men. But he's a Christian parent. Have you ever seen a movie that tells a story like that? No. Have you ever seen a TV show where that's the plot line? No. According to American morality, um, we would judge my friend Peter as Americans as saying, like, you are not being true to yourself. You are being inauthentic. You are wasting your life. As a biblical Christian, I look up to this brother and say, like, you are leaning into Jesus' way in ways that, like, I can't fathom. If you are a 
same-sex attracted young adults, um, I could offer several more examples or ways, but for me to do so in public would not be the right thing because <laughs> they're a little more uh, sensitive than the two stories that I've told. What I want to say is, <sighs> we are all brothers and sisters. And God's goodness, despite the fallenness of the world, weighs heavy on us in a good way. <laughs> like it is, the imprint is deeper and ultimately more eternal and lasting than whatever it is of the collateral damage and the trouble of the world that we carry around in ourselves. Um, one of the things we get to do as pastors is occasionally talk about the deeper things with people. If anything in this message needs further follow-up, really would love to walk with you and speak of these things. We are the company in the church of imperfect, fallen, troubled, broken, forgiven people. If you committed murder 30 years ago in the state of Louisiana, forgiveness for you. If you're in the throes of some kind of addiction, if you're struggling with anything on the unchastity list, like there is forgiveness for you. What if I keep doing the same thing over and over again? There is still forgiveness for you. 70 times, seven times, there is forgiveness for you. Here's my understanding um, of, of how this works. Sometimes we use the word grace in church. It is not the same thing as forgiveness. Let me conclude with this. In the big picture, the good news is that God has made his grace available to us. God has made himself in the person of Jesus Christ, available for you. God has made his spirit to live inside of you. God's grace is that he is going to stick by us, never leave us and forsake us, do all of it so that we experience his presence and power. We have a little responsibility. Our responsibility is to have faith which is to keep this window open in our souls so that the gift of God's grace in Jesus might flow in so that we receive that gift. Like, that's what God asks. Not a million good deeds. Not keep the window open so that the grace can go in. And what happens when the presence and power, when the blood of Jesus washes over you, one of the things that you experience as receiving this mighty gift is forgiveness. It's one of the, the benefits, the results of that gift coming into your life through faith. God offers you the freedom so that your stuff gets forgiven and you get empowered so that you can forgive somebody else for the things that they've done, again, done to potentially harm or wound you. Like, that's the picture. God's grace is huge. We keep the window of faith open. As we receive that gift, one of the amazing things that happens is forgiveness time and time 
and time again, and it gets us off the path of revenge and resentment and regret, and it puts our feet on the path that convicted murderer Ronald Olivier is walking, the path of forgiveness. We started with the book of Romans. Here's a word from the end of Romans. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the best news in the universe as far as I am concerned. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. And as the scripture says, anyone who believes in him, in Jesus, will never be put to shame. No shame, no regret, no resentment, no revenge, no guilt, no shame, no burden, no weight. Freedom, forgiveness, Jesus, hope, transformation, step by step. God's going to give you all the time and even eternity and all the grace that you need for this to happen to you. Amen and amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, you are compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in covenant steadfast love. Oh, how we need a love like that because of what we carry around in our hearts and minds and in our flesh. Thank you for the blood of Jesus, which is stronger than any other force or substance in the universe, which promises to make us clean and healed and whole. Lord Jesus, we invite you into our lives, in particular into the parts of lives where we feel the wreckage and the pinch of our brokenness. Lord Jesus, we invite your blood to enliven the part of our hearts that needs to extend forgiveness and kindness um, toward those around us. Either way, Lord Jesus, um, it's your blood and your power that does it. It's in your name we pray. And everybody says...